So we are on today with episode three of Rigged, the Massachusetts Drug Lab podcast. And today we have a guest, Christopher Post. Um, hello, Chris. How are you? Pretty good. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Now, um, what I've been having our our guests do when they come on the show is kind of do a little bio for themselves and also uh, give a give some context to where you have been working in this space with the Massachusetts drug lab scandal. So I'm currently at the law firm of Wood and Nathanson. Um, the firm handles mostly uh, appellate work, but we do do some um, trial work as well. Um, previously, I was at CPCS in the drug lab crisis litigation unit, um, and we handled uh, many of the um, cases that uh, have been reported on in the news, including Bridgman and CPCS versus Attorney General. Um, so aside from those cases, we also handled um, individual defendants when they would call in, try and figure out what's happening with their case. Um, I'm sure you're aware it was something like, you know, 60,000 convictions that have been overturned so far. So if someone had a drug case in Massachusetts, anywhere from 2003 to 2012, and they wanted to figure out what happened with their case, whether or not um, their guilty plea had been vacated, what steps they have to take in order to, um, you know, get their record sealed, we would handle mostly that. Okay. For people who may not know, CPCS is... That's the Committee for Public Counsel Services. That's the Public Defenders Agency in Massachusetts. And how many attorneys were in the uh, drug crisis unit, roughly? At any given time, um, there were no more than six. So uh, we were constantly backlogged. Each one of us had hundreds of cases. Um, and, you know, it was, <laughs> it was tough. <laughs> yeah. And I'm assuming the Commonwealth never allocated more money on CPCS's side for uh, for uh, investigation, or did they? So my understanding is the legislature earmarked years ago, years ago about $30 million for the entire response to the drug lab scandal. And so that was divvied up between the district attorney's offices, I believe the attorney general's office, and CPCS. And I'm not sure if any amount went to the courts, but... It was just that original grant um, that we were working off for years. That's okay. why we only had six attorneys. Right. So CPCS got a share, but it's probably fair to presume not not the not half of it. <laughs> right. I think the lion's share went to the DA's offices. Right. Right. So um, you want to take us through the Luis Torres, aka Rafael Suarez case. Sure. So uh, my client was arraigned in Malden District Court in um, 2004, and he was charged with um, distribution of a Class A substance. Uh, the police believed at the time it was heroin. Um, a certificate of analysis was uh, generated by Ms. Farrick and also Della Saunders, and they indicated that the samples had tested positive for heroin. Um, after he had received the certificate of analysis indicating the drugs had tested positive, he ended up pleading guilty in court. Um, and years and years and years later, um, we would find out information indicating that Ms. Farrick had been using drugs, um, including marijuana, cocaine, ecstasy, and heroin, 
even before becoming a, a drug lab chemist. It's um, well known now that when she was a chemist at Amherst, um, she had a huge cocaine and methamphetamine problem. But um, part of the story that um, is forgotten is that even before she was a chemist, um, she started to have a drug problem. And one of the things that's most interesting is she was working um, as a chemist for another Department of Health lab. Um, and it appears that at that time, she became aware that um, if she transferred to the drug lab, she wouldn't be drug tested because the same um, union represented all of the chemists um, in the lab, not just the drug lab chemists, but also the in HIV testing lab, the chemical threat lab, et cetera. So, and that union ensured that none of their chemists who worked with those kind of sensitive tests and issues was, and that was Moses, correct? Yes, it was part of their um, collective bargaining agreement. Right. So, and this, have, so I'm sorry, your clients, the, the drugs tested by your client were tested by the Hinton Lab in 2004, correct? In June of 2004? That's correct, in March of 2004, okay. which um, is a date of interest uh, because after reviewing the entire hidden drug lab evidence database, we were able to conclude with the help of a statistician that um, Ms. Farrick actually reported more um, chemical analyses that month than any other chemist ever in the history of the lab, including Ms. Dukin. Right. Um, what, what's shocking about that is we know that Dukin was only able to generate such high numbers through fraud. So uh, I'm sure probably in one of the earlier episodes you delved into this, but essentially she would uh, go to the evidence safe. She would check out 60, 70, 80, 90 samples at a time that looked similar. She would test five to 10 of them. Um, and based upon those test results, say everything in the group is whatever drug she thought it was. So she wasn't actually performing the analysis for the entire rest of the batch. Um, they call that so, dry labbing, correct? Just right, yes. Yeah, so that's when she doesn't perform the, the chemical analysis. So they have a um, chemical reagent test, um, depending upon the type of drug that they thought it was, and they would take a small amount of the drug itself, put it in an aliquot, something like a Petri dish, and then drop chemical reagents on it. And then that would then change colors similar to a field test that the police use in, in field encounters. Um, so in any event, um, we now know that Dukin um, was doing that for years and Farrick, uh, as far as her total testing volume, was much, much worse. And that's an issue that um, hasn't been directly dealt with by the SJC or, or the appeals courts at this point in time. Right. Um, they kind of... They, they don't even really, I mean, you haven't, like Andy Dukin and Sonia Farrakh worked together for for a year about, right? And like early, uh, A little less, less than a year, I believe. But yeah. Did uh, Sonia get trained by Annie? Do you know, is there any evidence of that? Was there before Miss Dukin and uh, Miss Dukin um, apparently shadowed her on a number of occasion, occasions when she was in training. Uh, so, so it was the uh, other way around. Right, yes. But that is a, uh, that is a, um, I don't know what the right word is. It's a startling fact given that there's been these uh, um, narratives 
that the government has weaved together. Mm-hmm. Where at first it was uh, the official conclusion was Annie Dukin is the sole bad actor, but don't worry about Sonia Farrakh because she just had addiction issues. Then mm-hmm. it turns out that uh, it, there was much more known about Farrakh, but that they worked together. And and Chris, you've uncovered that she uh, Farrakh was more prolific than Dukin uh, in a, in a manner that suggests that she was uh, more engaged in fraud than maybe even Dukin was. She's there less than a year, and we're told that she didn't, she couldn't afford to live in the uh, eastern part of the state, and so she went to Amherst. Um, and th- some of us who have been around the block a few times know that uh, when somebody gets moved, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's for another reason. Um, yeah, one one curious coincidence: um, the month following March two thousand four, when Farrakh reported more analyses than any other chemist in the history of the lab, um, the uh, lab directors decided to switch to a two chemist system because one unnamed chemist. Um, uh, mistakenly certified a substance as cocaine when it appeared to be heroin. So we, we don't know um, if that was Annie, right? We don't know if that it was Annie Dukin or it could have been anyone else in the lab. That well, it, it could not have been Dukin because she wasn't trained on the GCMS uh, machines at that point in time. So um, there is a corrective action report that was um, provided to the defense bar that was buried in 10 you know, 50,000 pages of other documents. This is a two-page document from 2004 where it describes an incident where um, a a defense expert who was privately retained came to the lab in order to, I think, conduct a fingerprint analysis. uh, And they looked at the certificate of analysis. They also looked at the packaging on the evidence samples and they alerted the lab director because they said, gee, this this looks like heroin packaging, but the certificate of analysis says cocaine. Um, the uh, lab director then took a look, agreed, and then um, got in touch with the um, chemist who was assigned to analyze the samples. And it's unclear if he performed an independent audit, and it's unclear if he retested the drugs. But basically, they said this was a paperwork error. And in order to um, minimize the possibility that something like this occurs again, we're going to switch to a system where one chemist performs, um, I'm sorry, where instead of one chemist performing the entire testing, both the primary and secondary, we're now going to have two chemists so that um, there's some uh, checking mechanism to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. What's interesting is if you look at the chemists, who were engaged in this type of behavior um, immediately before um, this change went into effect. Uh, Ms. Farrick was, was engaged in this uh, much more than any of the other chemists, four or five times more than um, anyone else who was doing it. So um, we think that she is likely the chemist who is responsible for that mishap in the lab, but um, no one has been able to um, go back and determine that. I know the inspector general's office um, also thought this was of interest and tried to determine who the chemist was, but um, they were unable to do so even after trying to review all the records they had at their disposal. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. I, I, I had no idea about that. 
And um, it's very interesting that she was that Dugan was shadowing her because later on that's where she got into trouble. Like a, a lot right. of her fellow chemists would say that she would come up with then, uh, cocaines that were heroin and vice versa. Right. And then a couple months after this, um, Farrakh left the lab. So uh, Ilias was hinting that um, you know when when there's such a major move like that, maybe something. Um, might be amiss and it may not be someone who just wants to move out, um, you know, to Amherst to get some fresh air or to buy a house. It may have been that this prompted her um, departure, but again, um, no one's been able to conclusively establish that, but it is curious. Absolutely. Right. It reminds me of the, the, you know, the Catholic church practice of reassigning um, certain priests to other uh, 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 communities Right. Um, sort of, sort of for a fresh start, but but so just to 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 recap, what again, what I think is a startling fact that you have Sonia Farrakh being more prolific than Annie Dukin at a period of time um, when some of that time when they worked together, mm-hmm. uh, and and now we have, let's assume that it is Farrakh who was the chemist who needed the corrective action uh, uh, report uh, to be generated. Uh, then you have two chemists that appear to have um, um, produced wrong results. Right. Um, and this idea that there was a, so- a lone bad actor can't be sustained. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one's mind could wander and say, maybe it wasn't Farrakh, maybe it was a third chemist. Mm-hmm. Right. We're in 2004. We haven't even gotten to 2008 and nine, uh, And already the lone bad actor story seems to be falling apart. I mean, it's it's stunning in and of itself that the chemist who was responsible for that incident could not be readily identified. Right. right? That's, like, a, that's a great point. That's a great point. People working for the Massachusetts state government and to think that the lab, um, you know, was so sloppy that it wouldn't even, um, you know, have a fully fleshed out um, report on who did this you know, what steps were taken afterwards, whether or not um, that chemist was, you know, reassigned on purpose, where their duties changed, whether they um, had to go through additional training to make sure that it didn't happen with that particular chemist again. I mean, we, at this point in time, we, we have no idea what happened as a result. Um, and it's just because of sloppy record, record keeping, which is, you know, and, and, and collective amnesia too, right? Like they had to have emailed, they had to have uh, interviewed everyone that worked there. How do you not remember something like that happening? Right, right. And, and Chris, your your um, mem- photographic uh, recall abilities go further back than than mine. I know the the lab leadership structure in two thousand and eight and nine. Um, uh, do you do you know or recall? what that structure was in four. I mean, we know that, that Charles Salemi was sort of the lab supervisor um, um, in, located in the, in the office, in the mm-hmm. facility. Um, and at, at the point that I got involved, his boss was Julianne um, Nassif, right. who, um, who was sort of the director. I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting. She was the director of analytical chemistry, if I remember correctly, and she didn't start becoming involved with the drug lab until I believe several years after Farrick had been working there. So this okay, so was it Alan Stevenson? Was it Alan Stevenson? 
Cam, uh, Alan Stevenson, I, in some of the reports, I, he apparently went by Cam Stevenson, um, but he was running both labs for a period in time uh, around 2003, 2004, five and six, if I'm correct. And then he retired. Um, Salemi was then in charge of the Hinton lab and Hanchett was in charge of the Amherst lab. Right. And, and I forget now if Mr. Stevenson, is he, um, is he alive? Do we know? Uh, he was that. interviewed by the Massachusetts State Police um, in, I believe, 2015 or 2016. Um, he's referenced in passing in the Caldwell report. Um, so he, he was alive back then and probably is a wealth of knowledge. Um, I think he might have reviewed part of my pleadings where he indicated that, um, you know, DPH administrators were sort of aware that um, the lab was running on a shoestring budget, both labs, and that they were cutting corners, um, which is problematic. And certainly if you were a defense attorney at the time, you would have wanted to know that. So just give me a minute. I can probably pull up the exact quote. So just. Right. Sure. And, and while you, while you do that, let me just tee up uh, the question that I'm going to ask, uh, which is, has anyone ever put, uh, and, and we know that, that these people have been interviewed by state police at least once. Um, and we know that they were um, like many of them were called before a grand jury um, um, questioned possibly by Ann Kazmarek, um, which will be uh, um, another moment of irony that we will uh, observe. But um, has anyone put to Mr. Salemi or Mr. Stevenson uh, or even Julianne Nassif, because at some point she became sort of the, the, the boss of these records, uh, who that chemist was, that mystery chemist from 2003 or four, uh, or any, any questioning about that period of overlap where Farrakh was outperforming Dukin. Well, so there are a couple of different things. Um, I know the inspector general's office did try and get to the bottom of it, but I don't know exactly what they did and they weren't able to determine who this was. Um, I think the attorney general's office, um, even as far back as when Kazmarek was initially investigating um, the lab, they should have looked into this and should have become aware of it. Um, one of the things I pointed out in my motion was that within a week of Farrick's arrest, um, the attorney general's office was notified of her extraordinary testing volume. So uh, there was an email that was sent from Brad Puffer, who um, was the director of their public relations office at the attorney general's office, indicating um, that Farrah had performed almost 10,000 cases in her first year on the job. So um, Kazmarek, who had been... Um, prosecuting Dukin and who the month before had succeeded in getting an indictment about Dukin um, should have realized that these numbers were highly suspect. And um, instead of looking further into it, they, they just sort of buried it. Um, right. Cause the lone bad actor is something that they had been pushing um, essentially since the get go, when they first heard about this, they, there was a, a desire to just kind of pin it all on one person and walk away. Right. And this email that I was referencing is particularly interesting. There was a Boston Globe reporter who was trying to get more information on Farrick's productivity and what she was working on, which 
you know, might give light, shine light on whether or not she was also engaged in misconduct. And one of the things that the director of public relations writes to Ann Kaczmarek, Werner, and everyone else at the Criminal Bureau is, um, I'm sure we would not hand this info over on our own. So it wasn't just that um, they had received notice that there might be an issue. They realized the significance of it and decided um, not to pursue it and to adopt this narrative that with respect to Ms. Farrick, um, you know, her misconduct could have only gone back six months at most um, when they had realized within a week of her arrest, uh, actually within just a couple of days, that she she was a problem on the scale of Dugan. Right. And, and, and at some point, if I'm not mistaken, um, and, and at least this was my takeaway from the Netflix piece, was that Farak admitted that she was using drugs uh, throughout her entire career. I don't know if the portion was the same and maybe the drugs um, um, varied, but she was essentially high throughout her career at both labs. And at the point of that admission, I mean, maybe this is my assumption, uh, drugs vary, but at the point of that admission, I would be prompted as an investigator to say, well, wait a minute, how could she not only shatter an Annie Dukin record, <laughs> essentially, uh, in terms of productivity, but, but do so high? I mean, uh, you know. Um, yeah. one, one of the interesting things about the statistics is it's not just that her volume is so incredibly high, but the bulk of it is cocaine samples, which we now know was her drug of choice. So um, that's also a sort, right. sort of interesting that she would end up analyzing more cocaine samples than anyone else ever. By um, herself, without sending right, it to anyone to verify. Without working in conjunction with anyone else. I mean, right. it's, it's quite curious. And the, the issue the entire time why the, the, the DA's offices are still continuing to fight these Farrah Hinton cases is during her grand jury testimony, she said she didn't steal drugs from the Hinton lab, but she didn't outright say I wasn't using drugs throughout that entire period. And then also, if you, again, look at the evidence, look at the numbers, it seems like her representation that she wasn't engaged in theft at that lab is likely untrue. I mean, why else would someone work with so many cocaine samples? And it's not as if um, the samples were randomly assigned. We know from the inspector general's uh, report that Salemi would let them, let the chemists under him work on whatever types of drugs they wanted to and whatever number without any real direct supervision. He was hands off, as they say. Yeah, it would be one thing if she was randomly assigned, you know, that many cocaine samples, but evidently that wasn't the case. There was a decision to work on, you know, I forget how many thousand it was, but more more cocaine samples than anyone else ever. Which is astounding. There there was another interesting um, uh, uh, fact that I'm, I'm remembering. Um, and maybe you know this, Chris, um, and can comment on it. But my memory is that before Farrakh joined Hinton, that she was actually assigned within DPH. She was at the HIV lab, mm-hmm. and she was doing 
HIV, I, I suppose, uh, tests for either, um, I don't know, government employees or for uh, uh, through a program that administered HIV tests for the public at large. It's unclear to me. Um, but in any event, these are people who probably are, are hoping for an accurate test result. Right. And has anyone ever gone back and said, well, was she using drugs or committing any sorts of shortcuts at the HIV lab? Because I think there's a lot of people who would be mortified Right. Uh, they found out, uh, attorney, their attorney Jim McKenna has been um, really interested in this issue because, of course, you would want a reliable analysis uh, for um, HIV antibody tests. And um, apparently, I mean, Judge Carey himself found that during the period in time she was working there, her drug use likely increased. So, um, we know apparently in high school and college, she didn't really uh, mess around with recreational drugs. She did have an overdose um, of, of some kind due to depression um, uh, in her teenage years. Um, but then when she went into grad school, she started um, dabbling in um, marijuana, cocaine, ecstasy, and heroin. Um, that was before she ever had a government job. And then when she started working at the um, HIV lab after she dropped out of law school, or I'm sorry, after she dropped out of grad school, it appears that her um, recreational drug use increased. So if you look um, very specifically at the ways she describes her, her drug use during the years, it seems like there's an uptick at that point in time. Right. So that was, that's Farak. That's how some of these chemists were behaving at the lab. Um, I want to talk about uh, swig drug. I want to uh -huh. talk about the standards for which the employees of those labs asserted that they were following in the court of, in courts, right? They were all testifying on the standard. Most of them that we've seen were saying sure. that they followed swig drug. So, like, this is important for an, a number of, of different reasons. So, first, you know, the importance to an individual defendant's case. Right. That's one issue. Second, um, the way in which the lab was able to receive funding and, and operate through the Coverdell grants, that's another issue. And then third, um, the representations that the, uh, the lab made even to the Supreme Court in Melendez-Diaz versus uh, Massachusetts, um, they also represented that they were following SWIG drugs guidelines at that time. Right. So there are these three different areas where this is this is relevant. So um, SWIG drug is the scientific working group for the analysis of seized <laughs> drugs. Um, they uh, periodically re uh, promulgate uh, recommendations um, for the scientific community to follow, and it's. Uh, universally recognized as the baseline or the floor. So if you were to um, depart from swig drug, one of the issues in an individual defendant's case is that the Commonwealth as the proponent of the evidence would have to prove that it was scientifically reliable. One of the factors in Daubert is whether or not the practice or protocol or procedure is um, sort of recognized as reliable by the scientific community. So anything short of this, it would um, not necessarily um, uh, 
uh, fail to pass muster under Daubert, but you're, it's a uphill battle. So when you're not even meeting the minimum standards that are um, recognized by the entire community, um, it, it, there's something of an issue there. Right. And the, and, and basically to sum that up, it's, it's basically, like you said, the ground floor, the, the very minimum that a drug lab has to, the minimum requirements a drug lab has to follow in order to say, yes, this, these test results are done in a scientifically valid way. And here right. are our scientifically valid results. Exactly. Um, and so uh, in Massachusetts, where there is a pharmaceutical drug, um, anything other than, for example, like marijuana that can be identified um, by its you know, vegetable matter characteristics, um, anything else, you need to have an uh, analysis that complies with SWIG drug, um, where the, the issue with the standards comes in. Um, it, it is that it's arguable that the standards that were being used at the lab for a period of time for a certain subset of drugs um, didn't meet SWIG drug criteria. Right. So we'll, um, we'll, we'll jump to that in a sec. But so the Hinton Lab, so part of the Hinton Lab discovery that you have, have kind of unearthed in your um, quest for the truth here. Uh, was a 2003 SWIG drug recommendation that the lab had represented it had adopted as part of its policies and procedures, correct? Right. So the Inspector General's office, when it did its supposedly top-to-bottom top to review of the lab to try and, and figure out what was going on, they themselves were able to determine that um, the lab was not SWIG drug compliant in a number of important areas, even as far as the date it closed in 2011 or 2012. Um, but what was shocking was in the discovery, there is a uh, copy of the 2003 SWIG drug rec recommendations, and there's an essentially a checklist of which recommendations the lab was and was not following. So, um, uh, there were notes uh, by certain sections saying, for instance, in all caps, need to address um, <laughs> without any you know, additional reference of what the plan was or when they thought they were going to be compliant. Um, what's interesting with respect to the, the standards is on the applicable section regarding um, drug reference materials, which is another word for standards, um, half of the section is uh, marked as problematic and that it, it needs to be addressed at some future point in time, um, particularly with the verification of new drug lots. So when you get a, uh, a legitimate standard from a pharmaceutical company or a chemical manufacturer, um, you're supposed to do, um, well, it comes with a certificate of analysis and you're supposed to do testing on it in order to make sure that it's, um, it's what the, the uh, pharmaceutical company represented that it was. Um, one of the issues uh, with the Hinton lab uh, was that they, A, weren't only getting their standards from licensed chemical manufacturers. Part of what they were doing was skimming from police submitted evidence samples. And even when they were trying to justify that practice, they were doing it incorrectly. So I previously <laughs> sent you an affidavit from chemist Heather Harris. So 
we were able to determine based upon the existing lab records that for a period of years they were using um, evidence that was skimmed from a particular um, Fall River, River Police Department sample. Um, they were using those street drugs as the, you know, quote unquote, 100 percent, um, you know, pure heroin standard. Right. So hold uh, on. Um, let me just. So the way it's supposed to work in accordance to the, the regulations is uh-huh. a lab is supposed to order pharmaceutical grade cocaine or heroin from a, a licensed manufacturer that then will distribute that cocaine and heroin standard to the lab for them to kind of have a pure form of cocaine to then test what's coming in against that pure form of cocaine. It's, so. Right. So that, that's generally the idea. What you want to do in order to demonstrate that the test is reliable is have a known mm-hmm. quantity of cocaine or heroin or whatever drug you think it is. And then you can run that in tandem in the gas chromatograph mass spectrometer and you'll come up with spectra, which you can then compare and say, this is a match. So, um, so when a drug is seized from the street, it goes to the lab. There's the first battery of tests. The primary chemists um, will take, as I described before, some minute portion of the sample, put it in an aliquot, add a chemical reagent, and that will give them a presumptive positive test for whatever drug the sample is. Um, but uh, it's not 100% conclusive um, because there can be false positives. So you have to do additional testing. You put it in the machines along with a known drug, like a known quantity that you should get from the chemical manufacturer with a certificate of analysis saying, this is the drug we say it is, and this is good for X period of years. Um, You know, we know that chemicals degrade over time and sometimes break down into their chemical constituents. So, you know, they'll say this is good for two and a half years or whatever. Right. Whatever the, the manufacturer says, cause they've done testing independent of that to see how long the stability of that, um, certain, uh, standard is for. So they'll, they'll give right. you a, a part of their, their certificate analysis when you receive it says it expires on this date. Right. So, um, and I'm sorry. This, this, this yep. segues to what's, what's important about the, um, a certified reference standard which is that one, um, the person certifying it has no vested interest in the outcome of the case, mm-hmm. right? So if a, if, if a uh, drug manufacturer says this, is, this lot contains heroin, uh, they, they don't care uh, about any particular criminal case outcome in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Right, right. They're not going to ruin their reputation by taking a stab at something they don't know. And they're not, you know, their job isn't, to insert themselves in criminal cases, they create drugs for all sorts of purposes, like you know, university or medical school research. So it's right. not. I mean, and, and and for that reason, they are bound by just because they're making things that might be otherwise illicit. They're still bound by rules and regulations for the manufacturer um, of, of of pharmaceutical uh, compounds. And because they're otherwise illicit, uh, there's, they're subject to strict control, distribution controls. Uh, and so everything they make is quantified. There's clear chain of custody. 
you have lot numbers. If right. there's ever a, a, a problem with a lot, you can recall it. This is the regulatory regime of the United States, um, and you are bypassing that for a variety of very concerning reasons uh, when you say that something is certified to be a reference standard when it's not. Right, mm-hmm. knowingly doing that, and that's what you were getting at before, Chris. So you want to pick that up as to what the Hinton Lab. So we we've gone over what they were supposed to be doing. What were they doing yeah. in actuality? You had mentioned the Fall River uh, cocaine taste. And by the way, I just want to make this last point. Uh, they the the chemists in these labs called the drugs coming off the streets unknowns. Always right. They said it was an unknown, unknown mm-hmm. substance. So what they were essentially doing was taking what they asserted as unknowns and then making what they claimed to be a purified version of a known cocaine standard from an unknown substance. Right. So they would take, um, uh, in this particular instance, um, they, with sample number, just a second, um, I think it's 622386. It was an evidence sample that came from a particular Fall River um, case. Um, They were using that for years and years and years as their qualitative standard. And they did this because they didn't have a budget to buy appropriate standards. Um, I don't want to suggest that this is entirely inappropriate in every single circumstance. You might think of an instance where, let's say the police are trying to figure out if a heroin trafficking ring in Boston is connected to one in Springfield. And so you're using a sample as a standard as a comparison, you know, that might be permissible. I've seen articles on that, but it, it makes little sense to use that for years and years and years without at minimum uh, conducting the same type of homogeneity, stability, uh, and other types of testing that the manufacturers perform in order to make sure that this is good um, for X amount of time, and also it's 100% pure or what have you. Um, right. And so in order to justify the use of this material, um, they were running it in the GCMS with a standard from USP. Um, it was a lot number I1 standard, which at a certain point of time was legitimate, but according to the the manufacturer's publications, um, which if you have an interest, they actually have some in the basement of um, the uh, library at Harvard Medical School. But you can go down, you can look through their publications and see what the expiration date was. And it was October 1999. Hmm. Years, years before. Years afterwards, yeah. either as the standard that they were using or the one that they were attempting to justify the use of skin material. Right. Um, so, and there's no real way of knowing what they were doing with that because none of this process, none of these processes were documented, right? They, it was all kind of behind the scenes stuff. Is that what was going on there? So, I, I mean, if the defense bar knew this was happening at the time, discovery could have been requested and produced. Um, and, you know, we would have had a better picture of what was actually going on, but none of the chemists thought this, I apparently thought that this was an issue or at least was worth divulging to defense counsel 
But I, I can tell Ilias, you've been practicing for longer than I have. If you had known about some of this and you were trying to advise someone whether or not to take a plea, I'm sure you would say, why don't we have a Daubert Lanigan hearing to see whether or not any of this evidence is reliable and let's see what a judge says before we even talk about a plea, right? Right. And 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 for those who may not know, Daubert is the name of a, a Supreme Court case, which stands for the proposition that uh, courts uh, 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 must keep out junk science uh, and <laughs> sets uh, some factors to, uh, to understand what is being submitted and whether it meets the uh, expectations of valid science. Um, and uh, one, uh, again, I mentioned that there's FDA rules and regulations. I mean, one of the things that separates science from junk science is uh, that you can't um, uh, you can't verify. Uh, there's not proper documentation. Uh, things are not done subject to proper um, um, controls. And uh, it, essentially, you're taking someone's word that I made this heroin. And, and the Fall River sample, Chris, was heroin. Is that correct? That's it? what they found it to be initially. But I, I mean. Well, it, it was reported to be heroin, right? Reported I mean, to be heroin, but like these things come off the street with all sorts of fillers, you know, it, the, drugs on the street are cut with materials in order to generate a larger profit for drug dealers. And there's a problem when chemists in a lab um, are, are, are taking a, an evidence sample and are just assuming that it's 100% pure so the whole thing is, and we're just going to use it as if it were a pure standard in all the rest of our testing. Right. So an example of a cutting agent would be um, a, a powderized um, sleeping um, uh, agent um, because someone who consumes it is going to feel a little sleepy and may assume that that's the effect of the heroin kicking in. So that's a perfect cutting agent. Those are not illegal. At least they're not um, they're not um, classified as heroin. And so if you are testing something that you think is heroin and comparing against something that some guy on the street said was heroin, you're essentially now in the business of adopting the representations of, of a trafficker. It, it, why do I say that that sample was heroin? Because we seized it from some guy and he said it was heroin, but we don't know what he cut it with. Uh, yeah. And to purify it puts you in the business of essentially, of uh, my view, of manufacturing and testing uh, drug uh, pharmaceutical compounds for which nobody at Hinton uh, or Amherst had any training or license. But so, I, I, very problematic and concerning to me. Um, and and I think that the uh, and forget that uh, there's no certification of stability. And as you said, things break down. Um, so you may be comparing something that used to be heroin and has sort of broken down to something that is not heroin, but may seem like the old non the old heroin that no longer is. So if the whole system falls apart, and Dalbert would, if this were known, I think Dalbert would have kept this out. Right. So I mean, the fundamental science between behind uh, gas chromatography and, and mass spectrometry spectrometry uh, it is not something that the defendants would be contesting. It's whether or not the application of the science in this particular instance was reliable. And that's real. That, that's where the hook is here, because 
without a valid standard, you can't demonstrate that the machines are functioning properly. Right. And so right. for any given instance, they wouldn't have been able to say the test results were reliable and admissible because they can't demonstrate that the machines were working. Right. Right. A, 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 a successful criminal defense attorney will probably use this exact phrase in front of a jury, junk in, junk out. And so to use the analogy of a meat grinder, if I, uh, uh, all meat grinders are the same and they all do exactly what they're supposed to do, but if what I'm feeding into the machine is not 100% certified uh, grade A beef, then what I'm getting out is not 100% certified grade A beef. Um, so if you're putting in uh, uh, spam uh, or uh, pseudo meat, uh, that's what you're going to get out. And so I think that's the problem here is if you're, if you're claiming that you're essentially feeding into these machines known heroin to compare against the C sample, but what you're putting in is, is not known heroin according to the rules of the game that you claim you're abiding by, that's a problem. And it's even a larger problem for federal cases when they do not just qualitative, but quantitative testing. So whenever you're trying to figure out when there's a brick of, of heroin and you want to find out how much is 100% pure heroin and not just filler, you need it in order to do the math correctly, in order to do the, the science correctly, you need to be able to compare it to 100% pure quantity. And so one of the issues is if they're trying to do that with something they picked up off the street, there's no way of reliably saying that um, the calculations are correct. Right. 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 And um, because again, it's an unknown, it like there's so many different uh, variability. There's so much variability in that, that it just kind of explodes any kind of <laughs> scientific fact that they are asserting. And, um, and to to go beyond that, they went above and beyond to ensure that no one really knew about the secondary stuff. I think James Hanchett, he didn't really care. He at the end he he testified before Judge Carey, as you know, in the Farrakh hearings, that for budgetary reasons he had been skimming material from trafficking samples to use as secondary standards instead of ordering the reference material. For budgetary reasons, one of the scariest things, uh, which really hasn't been explored by the uh, the OIG or the AG's office, was certain point during Hanch's testimony. He said, "We weren't just doing this. Sometimes we were so strapped for cash that we would take morphine that we had in the lab and attempt to chemically synthesize quantities of heroin from it." which uh, he described to the attorney general's office as a practice that was illegal. Right. So um, it's mind blowing that um, they didn't attempt to figure out whether a, whether or not he was corrected about it being illegal, but B if so, how many cases this could impact. And so I did some research to try and figure out uh, exactly what the, implications are and, and what the statutory regime is. And it appears that um, in order to do anything close to that, they would have had to have complied with a number of regulations uh, about record keeping, reporting and security, um, which there's no evidence they were doing at all. And, you know, it tends to make sense that the federal government would want strict regulation on this particular matter because they're they're creating highly addictive 
substances in quantities that they're just not reporting to anyone and they're being held in unsecure locations. Like the Amherst lab was, was just, you know, one floor of some building on a college campus. Right. And that's not just any college camp. That is the biggest partying school in Massachusetts, I would say. Like if they found, you know, students doing this in the college dorm room, there would be hell to pay. And they had the state in an unsecured lab manufacturing pharmaceutical pure drugs with like, with no, no one cares to your point. Like literally no one cares that they were doing this. And And, and Hanschett said two other things that I found astounding, Uh, not, I mean, he said them, um, but that there was, what was all, what was more astounding was that there was no follow-up. One one thing he said was that when certain pharmacies burn down, so you have a situation where something happens that probably renders all drug compounds in the building unusable. Um, um, He had a friend, and it was unclear if the friend was in the DEA or in the FDA, uh, but some government uh, entity who would deliver salvaged drug compounds to Hanchet at the Amherst lab, which I found astounding. I would have, the next question out of my mouth as an investigator would be, who's your friend and what (laughs) dates and what burnt pharmacies are we talking about? Um, Who is your daddy and what does he do? (laughs) The other thing that was astounding is that Hanchet says that in at least one instance, I don't know if it was more, that he made heroin somehow. We don't know exactly how because there's no record keeping, but he made heroin and he delivered it to Jamaica Plain, to the Hinton lab. Yeah, let, let me just read this quote real quick. Yeah. So this is Hanchett testifying before a grand jury um, during the investigation into Farrick. And he says, quote, it's illegal to make it. So I was, they would have very small runs where they make heroin. Through the years, we've had to make our own heroin from morphine when we had problems getting or obtaining standards. And then he goes on to say that I believe he, he, at some point in time, a chemist from Hinton came out and he made a batch for him. And I believe that chemist was Paul Servizio, who then took it back to the lab for use. And so I just want to make clear, so the the federal regulations are in um, 21 USC um, sections um, 812 um, at SEC and also 21 CFR sections um 1301 at sec but um basically you know hypothetically they could have done something like this but you need to tell the federal government that you're doing it right you need to take keep exacting records and you need to make sure that the facility is secure right but it doesn't seem like they were doing any of that and um one of the going back to stevenson um one of the things that I thought was shocking in that it didn't uh, make its way into the attorney general's report, but he told them essentially DPH knew that we were cutting corners. Um, let me see if I can pull up the, the quote. Um, so he essentially admits that they were getting more evidence samples than they could possibly analyze with their budget. And so the state police are questioning him and he says, yeah, I mean, no one tells. We're always short on resources. We're short on equipment. When I was supervising for a while, I was supervising both in Boston and in Amherst. We would get 42,000 items a year 
and we would have the capacity of doing 40,000. No one told us what not to do. Um, so it, it just, it seems like everyone involved in the operation of these labs were acutely aware that they didn't have the budget um, to, you know, to do it right. Them to adequately perform the work that was being used in criminal cases and no one cared. Right. So whenever they could cut corners, they did. And uh, in order to avoid that from coming up in a criminal trial, they, they just didn't acknowledge that they were doing this. So right. instead of saying, you know, we've got an issue with our standard, it may have expired. They would just say, no, 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 we're, we're following swig drug. Right. Um, and we have, and we, have, have um, we have, we have testimony. Admitted, Go ahead. Right. Sorry. If they had admitted that uh, this was a problem and they, their workaround um, raised numerous legal um, uh, uh, concerns, um, that probably would have at least promoted a healthy discussion of whether their budget needed to be changed. But instead, they concealed it, right, by, uh, through uh, um, omission right. and, and hoped for money to come. But nobody in the, in, in the government uh, um, in, on Beacon Hill actually knew the, the extent of the problem and therefore were not sufficiently in, uh, armed with information to, to change any motivation uh, to revisit the budget. Yes, in 2002 and 2003, they um, were audited by um, outside groups, and as was the state police crime lab, and basically they were told, you need to become swig drug compliant or else there's going to be a disaster. And <laughs> instead of taking the steps to become not only swig drug compliant, but also accredited, instead of doing that, they just claimed that they were SWID drug compliant and claimed that they were doing the same thing, everything the same as an accredited lab. Um, so in, instead of addressing the problem, instead of, instead of letting defense attorneys know about these issues so that there could be a Daubert hearing, they were just uh, claiming that they were, um, you know, doing best practices. Right. And and there appeared to be it, it's like an ongoing thing where there it was almost an ignorance and arrogance thing where they were like Hanchett's like yeah you don't need to do that you don't need to do that I can make heroin you don't need to buy it I can make it you know kind of deal where they they almost weren't wanting to follow the rules and like just thinking that they knew better at all times that that's that's kind of what I've gotten from reading a lot of the testimony from these people. Um, but another chemist, Sharon Salem, that worked for Hanchett, indicated that for most of her career, she would collect multiple discarded GCMS vials from other cases, dump their contents into a beaker, and then convert the combined material into secondary standards for use in testing. So when I first talked with um, chemist Heather Harris about this, this is one of the things that shocked her the most out of the entire Yes. Drug lab scandal, not just for our stuff, but like that, it's not science. Yes. Right. You, you just can't take discarded vials from the garbage, put them in a beaker <laughs> and then use that as a standard. Yeah. It's a it's, joke. And also there's, even if you were going to attempt to do something like that, you have to have a written protocol in place saying like, you know, what evidence samples are suitable for use in this manner, not just, whichever vial comes out of the garbage. Right. Um, right. The touchstone of science is um, 
things are written down beforehand, right? Um, yes. And, it's like following a recipe when you're cooking. It's right. you need and, a written recipe to do it. It's reproducible, right? If to use the recipe analogy, that's perfect. If I say heat the oven to 325 degrees uh, and bake for 20 minutes using these ingredients, you should be able to heat your oven to 325 degrees and heat the same ingredients for right. 20 minutes. Um, now, if I tell you what the ingredients were, um, but they're not certified uh, to be that uh, thing, then there's a reproducibility problem. Um, and that's assuming I'm following a written recipe. So I want to go back to something, uh, Chris, that you said about Hanchet, that no one told him um, what not to do. And, and, and I know his, his, he referenced the, the, uh, on occasion making heroin for Jamaica Plain in response to the question, well, did your super, superiors know about this practice? And his answer was, well, I think so, because some, sometimes they use my heroin. Um, but, but of course, someone did tell him not to do this, and that is swig drug. And I think if you had so the problem, the, the, the failure with swig drug is not like a technical, like we, we hit some elements, but we didn't hit others. As I understand it, swig drug, step one is you got to write your detailed written protocols before we know whether they're good enough and whether they exceed the bare minimum that swig drug establishes you need to have them written. Right. And, and my understanding was up until even Andy Dukin's um, uh, benching from, from doing chemistry, they still didn't have those written protocols at Hinton because she was tasked with actually creating them. Right. And, so and she never did it. <laughs> written, and they weren't even written. Yep. And, and Swig Drug says you can't use our guidelines as your protocols. And my understanding is for a, at least a decade, at Hinton, they took the photocopy of the Swig Drug Guidelines and, and just handed it out. Yeah. So I, I just want to be real clear about something. So Swig Drug itself, it says essentially you need to use reference material and that reference material needs to be verified and validated. So again, like the example I gave you earlier, if you're trying to see if some drug ring in Boston is connected with one in Springfield, you can use something like this as a standard. It's not, it doesn't violate swig drug, but you have to specifically make sure that each new drug lot is verified and validated. And that's the issue here because it appears that they were synthesizing chemicals in-house when they weren't skimming from uh, evidence that the police had seized. And they did not have the appropriate legitimate standards that they would have needed in order to verify those for use. Right. And right. I take it that they never told the defendant in the Fall River case that, by the way, for, for the good of society, you've donated some of your alleged samples. <laughs> uh, to it seems of like that he was never told, which is crazy because... In that particular case, weight was an issue. Uh, and so if, if they wanted to have their own um, expert come in and reweigh the sample, if there's, there's going to be a problem there because it's not, it's not the same weight as it was originally. They're literally taking tons of, well, I mean, I don't know how much, but a lot from that in order to, because they kept using it and using it and using it down the road. So they would just keep depleting from it. And that is not what they are supposed to be doing. And that's not what they're asserting they're doing in court. So let's talk about Annie Duke and talking about standards. And so when was it? Was it 2016 when the AG's office interviewed her 
um, uh, for the Commonwealth versus Cotto. Yeah, so following the Cotto and Ware cases, so those were the original SJC ferret cases. And way back when, um, the, the defendants in those cases were also arguing that Ferrex numbers were suspect, uh, but they didn't have enough that they didn't have access to the drug lab evidence database. They didn't know at the time that Ferrex was worse than Duke and ever. But in any event, leaving that aside for a moment, as a result of those cases, the attorney general's office at the behest of the SJC um, began to interview individuals in a grand jury uh, in order to try and figure out what was going on with Ms. Farrick. And uh, after they interviewed um, some of the chemists at the Amherst lab and, and discovered that um, there were issues with the use of, of standards there, they were trying to determine whether or not the same practices were going on at Hinton. And so they interview Ms. Dugan and she says, no, we weren't doing that, or at least I don't recall that ever happening. But when you actually look at the paperwork, her signature and initials are on years worth of uh, of QC documents stating that we used a particular evidence sample uh, in testing as our qualitative standard. So um, let me see if I can look at pull up the exhibit just a second. Right. And beyond just those standards that she was um, signing off on, she was also testifying as to how they use standards in court, like going back to 2012. You know, to, there's several in Commonwealth versus Scott, uh, the discovery in that is a lot of her testimony. And she talks specifically about standards on the stand that they got them from US Pharmacopoeia and that they had a three or four month shelf life. And that, um, and when she was pressed, by one of the defense attorneys for that case, she said that the lab, like what? So the defense attorney was like, okay, so here's the, here's the expiry. When does what happens when it expires? She says, oh, we make up a new standard in the lab. She actually said that on the stand, and then years later, she said that she had no idea about how standards were made. When you have, yes. go ahead. So one thing she might be saying is when you order a standard from a pharmaceutical company, it can come in various forms right. and you may have a quantity, um, you know, in cold storage, and then you make up batches for use uh, in the GCMS machines um, for several months at a time until they start to break down. Right. But what she, she shouldn't have, made the representation essentially that all of our standards are a hundred percent pure that we get from pharmaceutical companies when she had to have known that um, some of it was material that was skimmed from police submitted samples. I mean, her, her name and initials are on years of QC documents showing that a heroin secondary standard was being used as the lab's qualitative standard. Right. I have here from the documentation that you gave me uh, heroin secondary standard sample number 62238 in lab documents from 2005 to 2006, demonstrating that she prepared batches of it uh, for use in testing. Right. And there, there's an interesting um, sort of inkling that this is going on actually when the state police interview people um, in connection with the reports that were made to them when they took over the lab 
that there had been that well, the, we're we're supposed to believe that that the reports were that Annie Dukin engaged in malfeasance, which I think is a very convenient representation to make by every other chemist uh, not named Annie Dukin that hey, by the way, that, that there was this fired employee who did all this bad stuff. Right. Uh, that has a sort of a CYA feel to it. Um, that no one has ever really commented on. But in, in those interviews, there was at least one reference, and I believe Annie Dukin made a reference, or somebody made a reference on her behalf, that she was, quote, making up standards. And I understand that that phrase is a little bit ambiguous and could maybe connote different things. But knowing what we know now about the USP expired law and that they're, in fact, using Fall River, making up standards, I think, is referring to the process that was not supposed to be taking place. And the state police knew that, and they seem to have performed zero investigation. Yeah, I mean, what, what's crazy to me is they, they interviewed Alan Stevenson uh, the day before the attorney general's office issued its report. And he said, we were cutting corners, and it's never referenced in the report. They just <laughs> put it to bed. Right. And there's, there's all these things that, you know— Annie Dukin said in her grand jury testimony, they have documents that, you know, show that she was not telling the truth and they just don't do anything with it. Right. So, um, it, it's, it's a weird ongoing theme here that it, like, it doesn't matter if you lie. It just matters like what lies you tell and how the state wants to kind of exert their authority in association with those lies. You could lie about a million different things but ultimately, it doesn't. It's only what the state cares about, and that. And yeah, I mean, go ahead. bottom line, they they wanted to convict as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible. Yep. And when it came to light that practices at the lab, you know, forgetting about Annie Dukin, but the actual lab practices themselves uh, may not have been scientifically reliable. They did as much as they could to sweep it under the rug and just say Annie Dukin was the sole bad actor. Right. Um, it was a convict, but she w- what in reality was, was she was just a very highly aggressive employee in what was essentially a conviction mill, a non-scientific yeah, so, so these, mill. These QC documents that I referenced before, it's not just Dukin's name on there. There's Charles Salemi and Peter Pirro, uh, Peter Pirro was the head of the math spec um, at the lab. And Salemi, as we've been talking about, was the head of the lab. So their names, you know, and initials are all over these documents as, as well. Um, it doesn't appear that anyone questioned them about any of this. Right. Um, they just sort of took Dukin's denial at face value and said, case closed. Right. right. And, and Chris, I think uh, I want to just focus now on sort of the chronology, because one thing that Jamie and I are, are looking at is the order that, that the story was told. Because if you tell a story sometimes in backwards order, you get a backwards outcome. Um, so what we were told is that once upon a time, there was a woman named Annie Dukin, uh, and she did a few things that she shouldn't have, and she was a sole bad actor. Uh, and that was... Con- contained in a conclusion contained in the OIG's report of 2014, and there was a supplemental in 2016. So my question to you is, uh, obviously you have your own source of information. You had, you've been conducting your own investigation. When did you learn 
about the issue of the Fall River, uh, I'll just focus narrowly on that, that there was use of, of a Fall River sample uh, a standard uh, or a sample as a standard uh, and that the USP lot that had been used for some time had expired. When did you learn that in relation to the OIG reports? So the OIG reports came out first and then uh, the Attorney General's Office Caldwell report came out along with the grand jury transcripts. And when I was going through those, I believe that would have been in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, there's, again, that, that quote that I read earlier where Hanchett says, uh, we were making heroin and it was illegal to do that. <laughs> Said, okay. <laughs> breaking bad. So That's then, what I figured. Um, like They had a camper out back. It was breaking bad. They had blue smoke coming out of the top. So, so my point is that, that I, you know, a lot of people will assume when the government comes out with a report summarizing the results of an investigation that that investigation was reasonably thorough and reached reasonably fair conclusions based on available facts. And I read that OIG report from 2014 um, with intense interest because I had a pending case at the time. Uh, and I read the supplemental report in 2016 with intense interest because I still had a case. And what astounds me is that there's not any reference or suggestion in either of those reports bearing in mind that they looked at all the documents and that they were able to interview or read the results of interviews of every chemist why why did they, do they mention anywhere any of this use of of, of um uh, uh, improper um uh, reference material uh in that and why if it's not mentioned uh, how, how do we account for that um, well, I, I, so it's not mentioned in the OIG report anywhere. And I, I don't think it was an issue that was flagged by anyone until Hanchett, um, testified in the, in the grand jury that they were doing any of this. So, um, you know, uh, if the inspector general's, uh, experts were going through, you know, all of the QC documents in the lab, uh, this this kind of would have been hard to find because it's, you know, a particular drug, heroin, um, that was being used for not, you know, from at least 2002 to 2005, um, six or seven, but, you know, they would have been looking at everything from, for every drug uh, from 2002 to 2012. So, I mean, it could have been hard to find. It, they, they may not have understood that this um this was happening but as soon as the caldwell report came out there should have been additional investigation at a minimum at a minimum yes i i mean i talked with tom caldwell over the phone and i sent him some of these materials um and he essentially said well, my job wasn't to look into the Hinton lab. It was just to look at Amherst. Um, and, you know, I specifically sent him the portion of Dukin's testimony 
and attached the QC documents that showed that she was lying or at least didn't remember correctly. Right. And the answer was, it's not my problem. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, this yeah, was going and, on at Amherst too. And, that's, I mean, we, right, and he worked at the Tom attorney general's Oliver. office, right? Tom Caldwell, right. he was, yeah. But Amherst, I mean, we have Hanchett admitting to doing the very same thing that you have proof that they did at Hinton. And right. if someone had talked to Hanchett, I mean, it's not like it was extracted from him under some coercion. He readily admitted that this is what was going on. He had no choice to. And I would think that if you're investigating the drugs that Sonia Farrakh took, you would have to then demand, the first question is, I want all inventories and all quantities right. uh, and all chains of custody. This would have just inevitably come up as the first series of questions on, well, is any heroin missing? Because obviously there was heroin missing because nobody had heroin that was pharmaceutically manufactured uh, on hand. Right. So that would tell me that either someone stole all of your heroin or you never had it, both of which would be uh, extremely concerning. I mean, it's, it's concerning to me that they learned from Sharon Salem and Rebecca Ponce that this was going on at Amherst uh, and Sharon Salem told them, uh, told them, I believe this is happening at Hinton at Well. Hanchett then says, you know, this is what we were doing at Amherst. They definitely knew I was doing it. Uh, you know, the directors at DPH and people over at, at Hinton knew I was doing it because I made batches of this stuff for them. Uh, then Cam Stevenson uh, was interviewed and he had run both labs and said we were doing it. And then they, you know, interview Annie Dukin and she says, no, we weren't doing it. And then case closed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dukin's account is the only thing that's referenced in the AG's report. That, well, in fairness, uh, this, though, this in, wasn't a practice that happened at the Hinton lab. Right. In fairness to that, and it's not like Annie Dukin has ever lied before, especially on the stand. So, well, the other thing, so, you know, our, um, our democracy relies not only on us uh, having some faith in government. Um, but we have a, 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 what we believe is a free and independent media. And right. we expect that when malfeasance occurs, that the media is going to call it out. And I think a lot of people, uh, I'll, I'll speak for myself, that you know, w within the first 60 minutes of my waking day, uh, I try to consume um, uh, um, content from independent media because I want to know, did the world fall apart while I was sleeping? Uh, and... Uh, I don't believe, I know, I know that Netflix knows uh, the, the people involved in the production of the Netflix uh, program, how to fix a drug scandal. I, I'm pretty certain they knew about the uh, uh, improper manufacturing of reference st standards, at least at Amherst. Um, and I don't believe they even <coughs> met it once. In, in fact, they sent the contrary impression <coughs> by having their actor using she keeps reaching for a bottle of manufactured drugs, uh, uh, sort of like you'd be reaching for cough medicine, uh, and it may it, it creates the impression that maybe once in a while that bottle contained heroin, um, which I think is completely misleading because that's not what could have happened. Um, uh, uh, Chris, to your knowledge, has the Globe does the did the Globe ever have reason to know about this part, particular aspect? Well, I mean. Through, I mean, I think the story here is that throughout the entire scandal, reporters were trying to figure out what was going on, and the attorney general's office or whoever else from the Commonwealth 
continually minimize things. So uh, within a couple of days of Farrick's arrest, for example, Andrea Estes, the Boston Globe reporter, reached out to the attorney general's office to try and figure out what was going on with Sonia Farrick's testing volume. Um, and they, they essentially told her it wasn't a problem. Um, I spoke with her, you know, after I found the, the email where she's referenced and she said, I feel like I was lied to. Um, so it, right. this entire thing is a story of, you know, every single agency, the attorney general's office, the inspector general's office doing as much as it can to, or much as they possibly could to minimize things and not let the public know what was going on. And I think there's a bit of fatigue with this too, because there's so much egregious activity here. I actually had talked to Andrea Estes um, years ago. I would kind of correspond back and forth with her and talk about like what we were looking at. And I asked her specifically about the conclusion of the OIG report. And she's, I mean, I'll, I'll paraphrase. I don't want to directly quote her, but it was like, yeah, I know the OIG was full of shit, but what can you do? Like, I mean, essentially there was a lot of hand wringing and saying that like, this is just so egregious and they will just not, I think part of what's going on here is they refuse to get off of the Annie Dukin was the lone bad actor myth and they are digging their heels in forever saying that because they know once they admit that that was not true, that everything in the lab comes into question, right? That it, yeah. like, the whole time they have just been, it's Annie Dukin, it's Annie Dukin, it's Annie Dukin, when in reality, it was how they tested, how they you know verified, how they testified. Every single chemist in that lab had issues, and the entire lab itself had major issues where that frankly, invalidates everything that was done there. And I don't think they want to ever admit that. Uh, I mean, one of the questions that lingers in my mind was why weren't certain people prosecuted? So, for example, Inspector General's office found, and it's mentioned in the report, that a number of people from DPH lied on Coverdell grant uh, uh, paperwork. Right. They essentially said we follow swig drug um, realizing that that was not the case. Um, the inspector general's office, I'm sure should have known that that was a federal offense to lie on, on those grant um, proposals uh, in order to get that money, but uh, no one was prosecuted. So that is curious. Well, it, uh, and that what I think what you're referring to is that the June breach, right? Where they, they just swept the entire thing under the rug. The June breach is what we haven't gone over it yet on the podcast, but that's what got Annie Duke fired. According to the state was that she took drugs out of the safe that were not assigned to her and tested and tested them for Norfolk County. And, um, the, the drug lab found out and she forged the, um, the evidence officer's initials on the paperwork and they found out that she had done that and to get the Coverdale grant uh, the supervisors in the lab swept all of that under the rug and, ref and delayed uh, reporting it for I, I believe it was six or seven months do you remember how long it was yes. Chris? Yeah, I don't remember exactly but they have to do two things one is um, you know they have to alert the government when there's any allegations of misconduct so that was the whole issue with Dukin. They uh, were told that she 
you know, took out samples inappropriately and forged people's initials, um, that should have been in their report to, um, for the Coverdale funding. The other thing though, they also have to um, certify, and I, I forget the language, but essentially that they're following generally accepted scientific practices. And uh, they should have known at the time that they weren't actually in compliance with swig drug and yet told everyone, you know, prosecutors, the court, defense attorneys, uh, state police who were um, managing the, the Coverdale reports that they were in fact following swig drug. They knew it wasn't true. Right. So why on earth, you know, did someone not get prosecuted for that? I, I, I have no idea. I mean, it's, it's mentioned in the inspector general's report, um, it, you know, that they lied and, and they come to the conclusion that Dukin was the sole bad actor. It just doesn't, doesn't jive. No. Right. And, and the, we'll, we're going to, we're going to cover this, I think in greater detail when we get into the actual chemistry or the claimed chemistry that was taking place. Uh, but one of the things that swig drug or any scientific principles uh, require is that errors or discrepancies be logged. Right. And there was a, a, a there's a tremendous, um, I mean, the thing that bothers me, I, I don't want to compare them, but bothers me a lot uh, because it, affected everybody, not just maybe uh, heroin cases, for example, is this idea that they could retest ad nauseum until they got the test result that they liked. Right. Uh And that's a Brady violation, uh, in my opinion. If you do a test and it comes back negative and you say, well, my machine wasn't right or I didn't have the right thing or the room temperature was too cool, whatever excuse you're going to make, and you retest it again and you get the, the desired outcome, that's a if you don't turn over both tests, that's a Brady violation. It's also uh, unscientific, right? Because they weren't reasons. doing it, and you've made this point over and over again, Elias. They were not doing that when they got a positive result. They got a positive. Right. It's like boom, we got what we wanted. Let's move on. They got a negative. It's like oh, let's let's keep testing this until we get we we really see what this is. You know, there was right. always like those YouTube those YouTube videos with people doing trick shots where they bounce the basketball off seventeen objects and into the basket. Well, your YouTube video doesn't include the you know three hundred hours of failed uh, attempt. <laughs> right, it just shows on where it works, and that's not science. If you purport, if you presented that and said, "Look, scientifically, I can prove a way that will ensure that this ball goes through that hoop," that's not science um, unless you show all of your outtakes, and then someone can say, "Wow, this guy definitely has figured out a way that every time it's going to go through." So I think that, that there was another fundamental problem here, which is you're not disclosing, and this isn't just Andy Dukin, this was a, a lab-wide practice, which would have been prohibited, I believe, by swig drug, um, of not mentioning any time, not documenting when you had a bad outcome, I mean, meaning a discrepancy or some error, uh, and not d- turning over all your negative tests. And so, yeah, I, so cer- I, Certainly, I, I don't want to say that there's something untoward about um, running a sample again that may happen because of what the evidence sample was cut with or for all sorts of reasons. The issue is not telling defense attorneys about it. So this may happen from time to time in normal course in even a good lab, but, you know, not letting people know that there was a negative result, you know, is clearly a Brady violation and they ought to have known it at the time. 
Right. And can I tell you that uh, like everyone thinks the state police lab is, you know, the the gold standard in Massachusetts or people who, you know, bother to think about any of this stuff. But I actually queried the state police lab for how many negative results they get. And they said they don't track that. They don't track negative results in their lab, which that to me is very curious. But um, I want to, we, we will, I think we, we have, we've covered a lot. I'd like to kind of continue the conversation, but we're kind of running long here. So um, let's let's stop for now. But Chris, we would thank you so much for coming on and we would love to have you back to kind of cover maybe the OIG report. We're going to do a whole episode on that. So maybe that's something that you would be interested in coming back and doing. Okay, great. Yeah. And again, sorry I didn't see your emails yesterday. Oh yeah, no worries. This has been great. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I think we've kind of uncovered, you've been, I mean, so how long have, let me, let me just ask you one more thing. How, how long have you been doing that? How long have you known? You said 2017 is when you kind of really dug into this. How long have you been doing the standard stuff and, and all this stuff? The standard stuff, like I mentioned, immediately after the attorney general's office released the Hanchet grand jury testimony. That's when we started getting interested in it. Mm-hmm. And we, for about a year were um, through um, uh, discovery motions, were trying to get more information from the department of public health. Um, it, I ended up getting more information uh, through public records requests than through court orders. Wow. Um, but uh, so we spent about a year trying to piece it together and then we um, made it an issue in some of these cases. And I shouldn't uh, probably shouldn't sign off before saying that the judge in the Torres matter allowed the motion for a new trial uh, without a hearing um, and did that uh, within a week after I had filed a motion to modify the protective order in the case to make certain Inspector General's office uh, records public. Wow, um, so that would be yeah. huge. That would be huge if you could get that. Yeah, so uh, that's still being litigated. We're now in COVID nineteen limbo. I'm not sure if you're <laughs> familiar with that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The courts have been closed. Of they've only been hearing emergency matters and everything else. It's sort of on the back burner. There aren't going to be jury trials until September. So. Um, wow. You know, we were hoping that some of this information was going to be made public earlier this year. It may not um, until the fall. Wow. Well, at least we're getting, uh, in our small way, we're getting it out to the public in this format, which I think is huge because Tilius's point, like the globe is not covering secondary standards. Like there's a lot, these publications, there's been a million things on like Annie Duke and the personality, Sonia Farrakh, the personality, but they haven't gone into the lab and said, what were these people doing and how long, like how is it possible that a co- that a chemist can cook crack cocaine like Sonia Farak was doing in the actual lab that they're supposed to be testing for. That is an outrage. And it was, they, they never even discovered it. If this didn't, if this didn't come out, they literally would never have known. She would have just retired or they would have just swept it under the rug and we wouldn't have known that chemists were actually cooking drugs and manufacturing illegal drugs in our labs that they were supposed to be testing in. It's, it's she was cutting open evidence bags in the evidence room and then taking crack and then smoking it in the evidence locker. Like it's most, 
absurd it's, thing anyone's ever heard of. It's a joke. It's a joke. And then she's going, well, my favorite, didn't she get, when she was arrested, wasn't she smoking crack in her car in the court parking lot? She was, yeah. She, <laughs> she was out on her lunch break and she, quote, got pretty high. Dude, uh, that sounds like me in high school. You're like me in college. It's like, dude, you know what? I was on my lunch break. I got super stoned at my landscaping <laughs> job, not at my job testifying, it, like to send people away to do this for doing the same thing that she just did. It's nuts. It's nuts. Yeah. Anyways, it was great talking to you, Chris. So we will continue this conversation down the road. Thank you so much. All right, thanks so much. Yeah. See you later. Okay. Bye bye.